one of the more famous passages in the gospel has to do with the subject of the Beatitudes, right? So whether we're talking about the gospel of Matthew chapter 5 or the gospel of Luke chapter 6. So blessed are these people who have these particular characteristics, whether we're talking about being merciful, being pure of heart, and so on and so forth. But because of time constraints, I'm going to focus simply on one particular characteristic. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as you can probably guess, throughout the course of the New Testament, the word which is rendered in the English as poor shows up multiple times, but it actually corresponds to two words in the original Greek. So the first word we might refer to as perhaps the worldly poor, right? So people who are lacking in money, people who are otherwise lacking in material goods, as a result of which they need to work, or they're basically otherwise dependent on other people to basically fill in the gap. Now, what's interesting about this particular version of the word poor is that it only shows up twice in the New Testament, whether we're talking about the actual word or this particular derivative in the Greek. And so, for example, we find this particular word in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and perhaps more famously in the Gospel of Luke chapter 21, in reference to this poor widow who basically gives two copper coins, but who in the words of the Lord himself basically gives everything. In any case, and kind of more to the point, this particular rendering of the word poor isn't found in the context of the Beatitudes. And so instead, in the context of the Beatitudes, again, whether we're talking about the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 or the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, we find the second word which is also rendered in the English as poor. And funny enough, the second word in the Greek literally means to crouch or to cower as one who is totally helpless. In other words, this particular word refers to someone who is totally dependent upon other people because, again, they are totally and completely helpless. And that's why it's quite fitting that in the context of the letters of the Galatians, for example, this word is rendered not simply as poor, but instead is rendered as beggarly. Okay, now that we've kind of defined the basic meaning of the word poor in the context of the Beatitudes, I think it's important to kind of clarify a few things just to kind of make sure we're on the same page here. And so first of all, I think it's really important for us to kind of clarify right off the bat that we're talking about people who are poor in spirit as opposed to people who are materially poor. Because it's really important for us to know right off the bat that there's nothing inherently blessed about lacking money in your bank account. There's nothing inherently holy about being broke. Because even though it's true that a certain lack of material wealth can make you more inclined to lean on and depend upon the Lord Jesus Christ, at the same time, the opposite can be true as well. And so, for example, it's not a stretch for us to imagine that a lot of people who are poor in terms of material goods are perhaps inclined to focus exclusively on accumulating wealth, especially if they base their sense of security on material things, as opposed to God's fatherly care, for example. Beyond that said, the other thing I want to clarify with regards to this invitation to be poor in spirit is that it's not meant to be a demeaning thing, in the sense of being something which is inherently contradictory to our intrinsic dignity as children of our Father in heaven. But instead, it's meant to be this freeing and even sort of liberating thing. Because even though it's true that truly without the Lord, we can do nothing, we are entitled to nothing, and we're capable of nothing, at the same time, the corresponding reality is that with the Lord, all things are possible. And more to the point, the one who makes all things possible just happens to be our Father in heaven. And so therefore, things are okay and we can be at peace despite our ongoing sense of dangling insecurity. Okay, now to further illustrate this particular point, I want to give you two different examples. One from the Bible and one which is a slightly more contemporary example. So throughout the course of the gospel, you'll notice that the Lord is constantly fighting with the scribes and the Pharisees, basically because of two important issues. 
And so first of all, the Lord is constantly on their backs for being completely obsessive about externals, for overemphasizing the external practice of the faith, whether we're talking about, for example, saying long prayers or attending temple worship, over and above the real work of actual conversion. But secondly, the Lord is really critical of the scribes and the Pharisees for lacking a certain teachability, for lacking a certain poverty of spirit, if you will. Because even though it's true that the Lord has an infinite amount of patience for our mistakes, even if there are recurring mistakes and even if these mistakes involve serious matter, at the same time, something that the Lord hates, something that the Lord absolutely despises, is again our lack of teachability, in the sense of being firmly entrenched in this deep habit of doing something wrong, while at the same time being fully convinced that we're totally right. Because when we're living in a space, in a certain sense, we're impervious to God's grace, the grace of conversion and repentance. That brings us to our second example, and this involves this really great speaker named Brett Powell, who I've cited many times before in the past. So as the story goes, Brett Powell was participating in the context of a particular group, I think it was a men's group or something, when all of a sudden he felt inspired to make a particular point. And it was kind of a challenging point given the circumstances, but he made it nonetheless. And when he made the point, it seemed like things were going pretty well, based on how things actually played out and based on even nonverbal forms of affirmation on the part of other people in that same room. But at the same time, he felt this nagging voice in the back of his head telling him that he had completely screwed up. And even when a friend of his in that same room texted him in real time to tell him that he did a great job, that same voice in his head told him, well, look, the only reason why that person is texting you is because he knows that you screwed up and he's sort of giving you a condescending pat on the head, if you will. Now, to his credit, Brett Powell recognized that this was a moment of temptation. And he recognized that the voice in the back of his head was, in fact, the voice of the tempter. And so what's interesting is that he chose explicitly to resist the temptation to overcompensate based on a perception that his performance was lacking. And so instead he chose to trust and believe that he had in fact done a good job, gave the rest to the Lord, and asked his friend who texted him to simply pray for him in this moment of spiritual warfare. Now obviously that's a really specific example of someone recognizing the moment of spiritual warfare and responding in the appropriate way. But I want to take it one step further. And so let's say, for example, that it's not Brett Powell in a particular situation, but it's actually you. And so you're trying your best to do what the Lord wants you to do, to be where he wants you to be. But instead of doing a good job in the mode of Brett Powell, you actually do an imperfect job and perhaps even a lousy job. I want to suggest to you, friends, that even in that moment, even in that moment where you know that you're doing an imperfect job or perhaps even a lousy job, despite your best efforts to, again, do what the Lord wants you to do and be where he wants you to be, even in that moment, you're called to resist the temptation to overcompensate. But instead, you got to recognize that in those moments, especially in moments like that, you're called to renew in a very particular way your commitment to remain poor in spirit, in a sense of completely surrendering to the Lord our God, the one who alone can make all things new in the fullness of time. Okay, one final example to kind of emphasize that last point and to bring together all these different ideas in a really tight and harmonious sort of way. And so this is basically an example from the writings of St. Therese of Lisieux, doctor of the church. And so as the story goes, she says, look, imagine you're a kid. Imagine you're a child. Maybe you're just a, a babe in the woods, right? And you're at the bottom of a flight of stairs, this long flight of stairs where, again, you're at the bottom and our Father in Heaven is at the very top of the flight of stairs. And she says, basically, look, even in that particular circumstance where the Father clearly wants you to try your best to ascend the flight of stairs, you can't do it, right? Because again, you're just a kid, you're just a baby. You can't even ascend like even one step, again, because you're simply this, this nothing little kid. 
and yet still you try you try your best over and over again despite repeated failures because you know that your effort is pleasing to your father in heaven and then she says look maybe you do this time and time again year after year throughout the course of your entire life trying and failing over and over again to ascend the flight of stairs where again you can't even ascend one step and so finally in the fullness of time your father in heaven descends to where you are he descends to where you are in that lowly first step, and he scoops you in his arms, and he carries you all the way to the heavenly heights, where you're finally happy, healthy, and holy, and fully in the embrace of your Father in heaven. And that, my friends, is what it looks like to be poor in spirit. Truly yours is the kingdom of heaven. And may God bless you all.